John. Good to see you. Good to see you, pretty. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a lovely, well, we have to be optimistic. It's a lovely time of the year, is what I wanted to say, uh, in terms of the, the summer. Of course, uh, we have a lot of interesting events happening all across the globe, and it's good to see that you're safe and well in the States. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful here. We're actually beginning the, seeing the beginning of the monsoon rains. So we're getting afternoon uh, for lightning and I have a little garden at back, which I've been having fun growing all these beautiful flowers and some food plants. I've got a layer of trees on the top, a layer of shrubs in the middle with berries, and then a layer on the ground, which are the veggies and the flowers and the herbs. It's like a kind of like a forest, simulated forest. It's been great fun. And these rains are watering it. Beautiful. I can I can see the image of of you helping and growing these plants. Uh, beautiful image. And I know we 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 had a short dialogue right before this podcast a conversation that we started recording regarding the content and what we are going to speak about. Uh, but since you have brought up the garden, uh, it's really piqued my curiosity. And uh, because I have been reflecting on the idea of of gardening and the idea of how humans can create a space within which nature can grow without excessive intervention. So when I go to the garden, to practice Tai Chi or Qigong, I often find myself drawn to the parts of the garden which have the grass, which is wild, and the trees mm. that have not been trimmed. And uh, I find myself strangely, I almost find myself viscerally hurt when I see the trees that have been chopped into a line because their branches grew outside a shape. And, and it has never happened to me before. Before I, I, feel, I feel like an emotional hurt when I see that. Mm. And I think that's something that I've started to see in human behavior across the planet, mm. across how we run the companies, how we run organizations and countries and how we take young souls and put them into schools and chop their minds into these square boxes. And, you know, with that in context, I want to sort of open this dialogue uh, very much from this part of my, my heart space, which is, which is still feeling that pain to talk about how can we allow and support a natural unfolding of a garden without intervening too much and and the lessons that you have learned in your deep forays into the silence and the sacred spaces. Beautiful. Well, one of the keys to that is, of course, uh, 
both the cultivation of the outer garden in the way that we've been sharing a bit, and also along with that, the cultivation of the inner garden, which uh, lays the, the foundation for really uh, developing a beautiful outer garden. I thought maybe today we could begin our sharing by having just a minute or two of uh, silence. I have a beautiful gong here, which uh, is a really classical way to open up a bit of the inner space out of which the inner garden begins to arise. So if we could just take a moment, I've got a little longer here, and um, we'll just take a minute or two to drop into that inner silence, stillness, and space. A deep stillness of the, the body, uh, a very, very uh, quiet, uh, mind, not the normal busy mind that we're usually addicted to, and touching into that deep silence, which is characteristic of our true deepest level of our true nature. So stillness, silence, and space. And it's gone, we got a chance just to drop into that for just for a minute or two. Nice. What a luxury. Always, always reflect on spending a minute of silence to realize I could always do a little more. <laughs> yeah. That was beautiful. It's really nice to do I, in my own practice. I think one of the styles of meditation that I learned from my own teachers many years ago, once you've established a one-pointed kind of consciousness, you can keep the mind in one place for extended periods of time without too much distracted behavior. Uh, then uh, to do many short sessions of say five, five or 10 minutes throughout the day. 
and just take those opportunities when you have a tiny little break in, in whatever the busyness of your day might bring you to take just a short uh, break from that and drop into that stillness and silence and space for five or 10 minutes and uh, do that frequently throughout the day. What happens then is you begin to have that inner stillness recognized and remembered throughout the day and it begins to pervade the rest of your daily activity. It's the kind of inner cultivation of the inner garden that's very foundational. And so I've, it's been one of my main practices actually to help bring about a, being able to continue in a state of connectivity to source most of the time. Yeah, and uh, it also hopefully is something we will touch upon as we speak about integration of, of source in your actions uh, in the context of intervening uh, with, with the ecological systems and the gardens of both our inner selves, the outer nature, and for people who might have kids or who are teachers, the garden of the minds of others that we interact with. And I feel like as a world, we have been a lot more oriented towards action and tweaking things. And just from this one minute of silence, one realizes how important it is perhaps to listen more first. Instead of following my own advice, I'm gonna I'm gonna be quiet now and just uh, open it up for you to reflect back on what emerges uh, with respect to the garden or with whatever we have spoken of. Yeah, well, thank you for that. <clears throat> yeah, I'm very much in a similar space. I've been watching the uh, the intense activity of the outer world around both the cultural crises we're all going through with the corona epidemic or pandemic. And then of course, many of these very disturbing issues around uh, race and culture that have come to the fore in, our, in certainly in the US recently. Um, and I began to reflect on my own background a bit. Uh, as you may know, I was very, much involved in helping get the environmental movement going in the mid 60s, early to mid 60s. So a lot of my energy went into that, but I have rarely talked about how that began. What were the seeds for that? What were the seeds that brought about being so actively involved in helping create a movement? Um, but the seeds began back in in my own family and with my own grandparents and, and mom and dad in the garden of our own home. Uh, half the year we lived in a beautiful farm up in New Hampshire and New England, up in an area in the foothills of the White Mountains, right along the main border. <clears throat> Great place to grow up. And I have strong memories, some of my early, earliest memories are of my grandfather and grandmother going out into the little garden that we had and uh, 
even though in those days, I guess today we would call it a permacultural organic garden, but in those days we didn't have those terms. But we used everything, everything was done very naturally. We used many Native American approaches to the garden based on my grandparents' influences from the past. And uh, for example, we used a dig stick, which we, we cut and whittled down the end of a, of a hardwood, like hickory, and then uh, put that in a fire to harden it up a little bit further. And then we take that pointed stick out and place it in the earth. And as we place the stick into the earth, that was a sign that the energy of the heavens was coming down into the earth through the pointed stick. Then we bend to the four directions to honor the energies of the four directions and then lift the stick out of the earth and then Mother Earth's energy would flow up into the little hole that had been created. We didn't plow. And then usually the kids would come and plant, put in a kernel of corn and a bit of bean and the corn of course would grow up, provide the support for the bean plant to then come up and grow around them the corn stalk provided with that support. And in turn, the, the bean would provide the nitrogen that the corn needed in order to grow well. And then near, nearby we would plant some uh, squash, which are, and those three plants are known as the three sisters. So they, they work together as kind of a team. And, um, and then we, the garden was so productive because of the way that we did this and the honoring that we did of, of nature through the garden that we produced a lot more food than we ourselves needed. And um, <clears throat> on every weekend, we would take the extra food, the excess food, put in the back of an old woody station wagon that my grandparents had, and we would drive that food around to the neighborhood folks that didn't have much food and just give it away for free. So we knew they needed the help. Needless to say, we, were, we became a pretty popular family in the in those mountains and every sunday we'd gather in my grandparents uh, farmhouse in the living room and we would sit around together and sing songs together things like swing low sweet chariot and a lot of the spirituals that uh, i'm sure many people of that time sang together as a group and that was our that was part of the flow of the weekly life that we led and in the morning we'd always get up and uh, one of the first things that the kids were responsible for doing was going out into the fields and gathering the wild blueberries and other berries that were growing wild, the wild strawberries and raspberries, bring them into the house. And then we usually make uh, things like blueberry pancakes. And, um, <clears throat> we had some chicken. So we had some nice fresh farm eggs that we could bring into the mix. Occasionally, we had uh, some cows in the family, so we had some fresh cow's milk, pre-pasteurized cow's milk. And um, so everything, the, the connection to nature and the process of cultivating in the farm, it was kind of a seamless uh, connection between ourselves and the rest of life. We, for the first 15 years, we had no electricity or telephone there. So, uh, Later on, we got a generator to produce some when I was around 15, but for most of the time, we had no electricity and we used little kerosene lamps for lighter candles. And um, 
and for communication, we, we talked with the neighbors. <laughs> but uh, it was pretty simple. It was a simple life. We'd go down in the, when the ice was still on the lake in the winter. We'd get blocks of ice, had tongs that would carry the ice um, into the car. We'd, we'd bring it back in the woody to the uh, farmhouse. And then we would pack the ice into a ice box. The term refrigerator, we had ice boxes. And in the upper part of the ice box, you'd put a big block of ice with a pan underneath it to collect the water as the ice melted. And the ice, of course, got the ice box cold. The other ice that we had brought back from the frozen lake was kept in an ice house, which was filled with sawdust from one of the local mills that milled the wood. And so the sawdust acted as an insulator to keep the ice blocks fresh throughout the summer. So we always had fresh ice for the ice pots. So we lived in a very simple way, very close to nature, very close to the earth, like I'm just describing. And uh, I'm not sure what prompted it, but as part of that kind of seamless connectivity to nature, oh, I sh should have mentioned we also, in the old days, used to bring by hand uh, buckets of water down to the kitchen at the farmhouse. And then we'd have this fresh spring water to use for drinking and, and washing. And uh, I always enjoyed going up to the spring because I would, the spring would be shared, not just for us, but the, a group of leopard frogs lived in the spring too. I always enjoyed how they would jump into the spring uh, as I was approaching and then swim around as I was gathering the water from the spring and bringing it back to the farmhouse. So these were some of the natural things the kids did to support the family. And uh, as part of that, I, I developed a deep love of nature. And uh, from some deep place inside, I, I began to ask my parents and my grandparents, I'd like to go out into nature and spend some time alone in nature in a, in a, to make a deeper connection. And of course, when I, I think the first time I asked this was when four. And the uh, response was, well, maybe, son, you might be a little bit young yet. Wait a year or two. And then the next year came and I asked again. And they said, well, you're, you're getting close, but maybe one more year. And finally, after a couple of years of this, by age seven, at the end of my seventh year, they finally said, okay, you're, you're ready. You can do it. And so I went out and found a, a quiet place in the forest where I could uh, enter the thing we talked about before, the stillness, the silence, and the space of nature. And in that beautiful little grove of trees in the forest, made my first vision quest can. <clears throat> it was a short vision quest, I think only about uh, four nights in five days. And, uh, but to have that opportunity as a young child to go so deep into nature, uh, what a gift. I had never heard of the vision quest, the traditional rite of passage that the Native Americans practice. But essentially it was a vision quest that arose naturally, internally from my own knowing that this was the way to go, to deepen this love affair with the rest of life that I had begun to experience. So while I was out there, I felt like I began 
I went through a process of merging with everything in my field of experience. Every sense went through a process of becoming more and more deeply connected to everything that surrounded me in the sacred circle that I stayed within. Part of the idea was to stay within the sacred circle and I would spend most of the time within that relatively small circle of space, which would allow me to go deeper into everything in that space. So by the end of the, uh, the four or five days, through sight, everything I saw, I was deeply connected with. Everything I heard, I was deeply connected with. Everything that I smelled, I was profoundly connected with. Everything that I touched was part of my own body. My body was part of it and it was part of me. Everything that I, I tasted was part of my body. If I tasted a beautiful berry, became part of my, my body and my body became part of that very bush. So with all the senses, I went through an experience of deep, deep integration. When animals appeared, they appeared, I had the experience of their being part of a much greater extended family that I was a member of. And I noticed the longer I was out, the less and less fear the animal birds had. They would come closer and closer and even the flies and the butterflies and the insects would come very close. No fear. I think they sensed that I was not in any kind of a threatening state to them. So they, they had deep trust that they could be around me and we could kind of dance together quite naturally. I wasn't taught to do this. This just happened very naturally. So by the end of the four or five days, I came out with an experience of profound connection to the rest of life. And I became so passionate about renewing that, that I began to do it uh, two or three times a year, sometimes in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, sometimes down in where we spent some of the winter months in New Jersey, places like the Pine Barrens, uh, a place called the Great Swamp, were major hangouts for me. And I did the same thing, these, these quests, deep immersions into into the communion, the experience of deep oneness with the rest of life and nature. And so out of that, I had this wonderful gift, both from the quests, the vision quests, the passages, as we now call them, sacred passages or nature quests. Out of that experience, I suddenly realized that um, this was a huge gift to me personally, but it was a gift that could be shared with others that, that were friends of mine or those that I cared about. So I began talking about to members of my family and to close friends and sharing the kind of experience that I was having when I did these things. And I had a few friends that were crazy enough to say they would love to do that too. So I began taking out other people, mostly young friends of mine that, uh, that expressed interest in doing this as well. And so the, by, time, by the time I was in my early teens, I had a little tribe of young people that would go out with me. We do this on a regular basis together. And we began to have kind of a common experience of the sacredness of nature and deep, deep connection to the rest of life. So this became the foundation really for uh, a kind of passion to really protect and help my family, my family being the whole of life, not just the immediate biological family. That too, of course, but family was a much bigger thing. And so the motivation to help the family, the big family, 
began to grow and grow in my being. And when it came time years later to go to college, I looked around for a college that would have the only thing I could find that began to express what I was experiencing in nature, which was this deep connectivity or deep relationship. And the best science I could come across that expressed this was the science of ecology. Now this, in the early, in the late 50s and the early 60s, when this was all going on for me, the science of ecology was not widely, uh, you, you never heard that term ecology. You heard a lot about, you know, I remember when I went to college and I was enrolled as a student of ecology, I found a school that had some of the best teachers of it in North America at the University of Michigan. Uh, but, but they were hard to come by. You had to look carefully around the country to find good teachers. And when I was at the school, if I would share with friends of mine that I made it there, what I was doing, they'd say, what are you studying? And I'd say, well, ecology. And they'd say, eco-what? And I'd say, ecology. And they say, is that like entomology? Uh, the only word they were familiar with was other words like entomology and uh, related sciences, which were not ecology per se, but they, they couldn't relate to the word even, it was so unknown. So I slowly, slowly, I went through my, my training in ecology. I began to see that the scientific training that I was receiving brought in a mental perspective that was harmonious with the spiritual and ecological experience that I'd had as a young child and continued to have because I continued doing these deep immersions alone in nature for year and year after year after year. I'm still doing it today. And um, so for many, many years, this became the foundation of my life, these solo immersions in solitude. Human culture drops away. You're there alone in deep, intimate relationship with plants, with animals, with insects, with birds, with all the forms of life all the elements and you begin to experience all of these things as part of your own body and your body is part of all those things. So the science of ecology began, I could see, could express this truth from a scientific perspective. It was the science of relationship of all things. And from smaller uh, populations of animals and plants, it built out into uh, different populations coming together to form systems of life that we began to call ecosystems in those days, ecological systems. And then those systems came together into larger regional units, which uh, was one of the terms for that was biomes. And then these larger biological units began to come together and make up the body of what we now often call Gaia, or the, body, the entire body of the earth itself. Another term for that was the biosphere. But the, the, the term Gaia is an old European term for the earth as a sentient being. And I began to see that uh, as this term Gaia began to become more widely used, we began to see Gaia as, as a, a word that brought together both the scientific and the experiential sacredness of the connection to the body of Mother Earth, and we began to look at Mother Earth, as most indigenous peoples do, as a single sentient being, expressing herself through all the, the plants, the animals, and the species that make up her body, including ourselves.
were part of her expression. So <clears throat> as a result of this kind of thing, slowly, slowly I began to uh, want to do something to help protect uh, the body of this great mother that I had become so connected to. And, uh, and then of course, through the science of ecology, I began to have the, some of the toolkit from the science of ecology to work with as well, and to deepen my understanding mentally on top of the experiential foundation I already had. Um, <clears throat> I noticed that uh, a lot of things were happening to my neighborhood. The bulldozers were beginning to go into the forest that we used to go in as kids and began to cut down the trees or bulldoze the trees, put up houses and build parking lots, build malls. I grew up in New Jersey part-time and where I used to go and play as a kid is now a place called the Short Hills Mall. Maybe some of you that live in New York are familiar with that, but I used to roam the Short Hills Mall when it was, it was a pristine forest and filled with frogs and turtles and snakes and all kinds of raccoons and uh, wildcats, many, many kinds of animals. We even had an occasional bear in through there. So, I began to be really concerned about the accelerating impact of humans on the rest of life. They seem to be behaving as if they were free or independent of life and looking on the rest of nature as just something to take from. They were not looking at it as a, as a living relationship just like you would have with a true family. I also noticed that most indigenous peoples looked on the rest of life from a family perspective as I did. And uh, so I realized we really needed somehow to bring humans into that same perspective who were going to heal this relationship between people and the rest of nature. So <clears throat> from that perspective, I, I began to expand the sharing I was doing of the, of the quest process of going alone into nature. Human culture drops away when human culture is not around you then you're not disturbed by human ideas and human concepts in your relationships through the senses to nature. You're free to have a direct, unique, authentic experience, which is unique to yourself. And from that come unique gifts of insight that arise from that relationship, from that connection. So I began sharing that with others that were, were interested and ready and could see something had happened for me. And, and they thought it might be helpful to them. And of course, I'm still doing that work today. But on the other side of the coin, I also began to come up, I began to run across people like um, Fairfield Osborne. He wrote a book called Our Plundered Planet, which was a very early book on what was happening to nature. After that book came out, another book came out by a, a man named Thomas, who wrote a book called uh, man's role in changing the face of the earth. And that really took that thesis of the massive transformation that our species would bring to the planet. And then an amazing woman, a biologist, a scientist, came out with a book called Silent Spring, which is a very book, that, early book, that traced the way pesticides circulated through living systems and were not only poisoning us, but also poisoning the rest of life. 
and we began to see that all living life was actually a kind of system, a living system, just like our bodies are. But here's the living system that we we're now calling an ecosystem. It's the body of nature, how nature expresses her body. And it was being poisoned, both our personal bodies and these bodies of nature. And through all that, uh, by that time I'd uh, gotten a job with called the Conservation Foundation, which later merged with the World Wildlife Fund. Um, but in those days, most of the investigations of nature were being done from a perspective of how can we take something from nature that's useful to us as humans? So we learned to take from nature as a, as a um, you know, forest resource. We had forestry schools. If we wanted to take the minerals, we'd have mining schools that taught people how to mine. If we had um, ways to grow plants and to grow food, we had schools of agriculture. How to do agriculture, and, um, and of course that built out from the small farms out to these massive, giant, uh, corporatized industrial farms that we have today. Those didn't exist so much when I was growing up. So all of these different things, these different schools, and these different endeavors, were a means of how to take more effectively from nature, become more efficient at it, and also in many cases in these schools of natural resources, to do it in a way that you could continue taking, taking, taking without completely destroying the thing that you were taking from. And so there begin to be ideas of how to take in a balanced and harmonious way. And we developed ideas of carrying capacity, for example, of how much can you take before you destroy the system? But the emphasis was still on taking. So through the ecosystem ecology perspective, I began to work within the Conservation Foundation. We, there were a number of people that had a similar perspective to myself. And we began to come up with ideas about how can we shift the cultural perspective from one of just taking and looking at nature as just a basket of resources to being a living system that we're part of, we're an integral part of the body of of life on this planet. And how can we live responsibly and in a way that we give back and, and are living in a regenerative way with this body of life that makes up the planet? How can we do this in a harmonious and balanced way? So we gathered a group of people in, uh, in Washington, D.C. or south of Washington in these early days, 1965, I think it was. And we had some funds in this conservation foundation that helped us provide the funding to draw, draw together the top experts in things like economics, regional planning, uh, law, uh, governance, a number of these areas of leadership that were coming together to impact the planet <clears throat> in a variety of ways. So we brought them together for about a week, roughly. And before that, we spent a year working with them to develop uh, study, uh, study papers, which later became chapters of a book that we produced, on how their particular discipline was contributing to impacts on the planet. And we brought all these leaders together to discuss how each of those systems, economics, politics, 
regional planning, uh, the various kinds of resource taking processes for impacting the planet and have the leaders speak to how they were doing this. But we had they, the audience they had to speak to were the other leaders of these other approaches that were leading to impacts on nature. We asked each leader to speak to how are they, how are their impacts helping to, how are these impacts were relating to the broader system of life and how could they work together more effectively in a whole system way. We brought in the word environment as a word that represented a whole system perspective, not just a natural resource taker perspective. And we rented the term of the kind of the name of the gathering and the research effort, uh, the environments, the future environments initiative. We focused largely in North America because that was our home uh, continent, largely. But it was really a worldwide perspective. So what they discovered at the gathering was that no single discipline was really looking at the big picture. Each one was only looking at a small part of the picture. And so what was happening was the entire system was, was uh, beginning to fall apart or go into disequilibrium because there was nobody there responsible for the big picture. And there was no honoring of what nature itself, how it itself organized to produce a dynamic big picture that was really holding the whole system in place. And um, <clears throat> so, long story short, all of those leaders came out with a realization that we needed to do something about the environment, the bigger environmental system. And all those leaders went back to their places of, of operation and brought that message that we needed to do something about the whole system of the environment. Environment was a good word to use because it was not branded with a bias towards resource uh, capturing and taking. So by the by the, the later on in the 60s, this term environment caught on as a word that was very being used broadly in the culture as something that needed to happen. We needed to start taking responsibility for our role as a human in creating a more harmonious relationship with the rest of life. Uh, we followed up that gathering with a another one where we pulled together about 200 case studies, which took about took a number of years to produce. Um, <clears throat> these case studies looked into how different kinds of impacts were coming and hitting the earth and causing problems around the planet, not just in North America. And these case studies were done using the Harvard case study approach, which is a pretty well defined process of how to produce a scientifically acceptable case study, which would, would be accepted in the halls of science. And by the end of that and the conference, we again had a gathering where we put it together all the researchers doing this and a wide range of activities that were impacting the planet. And there were about 200 case studies that, that were developed. And again, we discovered that there was virtually no attention being given to these major impacts all across the planet. And many of them being caused by major development entities like AID, the United Nations Development Program, uh, the World Bank and things of that sort. But here we had the scientific proof of what these, these projects were doing. 
the impacts on local peoples, indigenous cultures, local economics, local uh, governance systems, and definitely local ecological and life systems. And we brought this together in this large gathering. By the end of that gathering, it created quite a shockwave. And uh, the shockwave was, we needed to shift our, our entire perspective of how we worked with living systems into something that learned the laws of nature, the principles of nature and how she operates, and bring those laws into how we develop our economic behavior and our resource development behavior. So we pulled that together, had a large gathering. You probably heard of the United Nations Conference on the Environment in 1972. That gathering was the first time the planet came together officially to discuss the role of humans on changing the nature of the earth and taking how we can take responsibility for the rest of life in a, in a way that's, that's authentic and balanced and harmonious. And these case studies became a major part of that of that gathering part of the evidence of what was happening to the earth. So when the conference was held in Stockholm, we had the evidentiary basis for, look, here's what's happening. Now we need to do something. And out of that came the first seeds of things like the climate change understandings and many of the environmental understandings of, of human impacts on the earth and of, on nature, which were translated into legislation things like the Environmental Policy Act, the various kinds of uh, initiatives to pr protect endangered species, and so on. Now, I'm mentioning all of this to show how just a few vision quests over a period of years, and one young guy led to an initiative that had profound effects, hopefully positive, on the planet through these, these initiatives that I was motivated to engage in and, and help birth back in the mid-60s or the mid-60s. And it, it showed me that the power of the vision quest, the power of a sacred passage or the power of a nature quest is profound. It can help you tap into a level of creativity and help you become a voice for the earth, a voice for nature that's incredible. There's no limit to the creativity that arises when you start touching into source and start touching into the body of nature and especially the body of Gaia, Mother Earth herself. You begin to become a voice for the, the creativity that needs to be expressed in our species um, to help it heal itself in this relationship. So I'm sorry for taking a little time on, on tracking this story, but I think it's an important one because it, it's, it's, a, it's a history of how one small individual was given a few things to do from the early passages and quests that really set the course of my life to be helpful in the birthing of an internal new process, which later became called the environmental movement. And of course, many, many people were involved. I mentioned some of those early ancestors of it, like Rachel Carson, um, uh, the uh, uh, Fairfield Osborne is another one, and that fellow did the men's role in changing the face of the earth fine. Those were all seed initiatives that were very important. And there were other ones. Aldo Leopold wrote a beautiful book on uh, responsible relationship to the rest of life, called Sam, Sam County Almanac. Henry David Thoreau pioneered the early initiatives on the power of solitude in nature. 
which were very inspiring to people like me about the, the importance and the power of being alone in nature and what could come from that. And then John Muir, whose ancestry came from the Celtic cultures of Scotland, went out and, and developed huge initiatives around uh, working with nature in a sacred way. He was part of the process of making sure that the national park system came into being. And uh, we're lucky today because people like John Muir actually planted some seeds, some creative ideas, which then took root in some of our leadership in the country and in our park system that has protected so much of nature took place. Again, Muir spent extensive periods of time alone in nature in deep solitude, received the operating instructions of how our temperature needed to shift to be more responsible, came back and got those things done. So I'm, I'm just mentioning a few of these things because we're at a time now where obviously we're out of balance. We have these pandemics happening. Part of the reason for the pandemics arising is our imbalance with the rest of life. Many of these new viruses are emerging from an imbalanced relationship to nature. We're in the process, for example, of melting the permafrost and causing many of the areas of ice that had formerly captured many of the organisms which were around 15 to 20,000 and more years ago. Many of those viruses and bacteria are not around anymore, but now they're being released again. And um, we don't know what that's going to create in terms of pandemic. We know it's a potential great danger. Another one is the destruction of the tropical forest. Many new species are beginning to go into a state of imbalance and many new diseases are beginning to emerge because of our, the creation of imbalance with, with many of these tropical environments. So both in the tropics and in the Arctic where the disease formation process at the root of that is often caused by these environmental imbalances that we've caused. I was pointing out at this some years ago and now it's, it's happening big time. So we're beginning to learn the lesson that we need to come back into balance with the rest of life and the rest of nature. And we can do that, we can learn the lessons of the science of ecology and the movement of the environmental movement. We can also learn these things internally by cultivating the internal garden we talked about at the beginning of our time together here today, by opening up the inner space, the inner peace, the inner tranquility, and the inner capacity to listen to nature and receive the creativity from nature and spirit, great spirit, about what needs to be done to come back into balance and learn from the indigenous peoples and cultures that learned how to do this thousands upon thousands of years ago. We have not been listening to those great cultures that have many of the answers. So, uh, and they practice many of these techniques of deep connectivity to nature through vision questing, meditation retreats in nature, deep periods of solitude in caves in the Himalayas, deep immersion in the, in the beautiful tropical forests of South India, out of which many of the forest dwellers brought many of the great traditions of the, of the Indian saints to human culture. All of these things uh, we need to reinvigorate today and learn from them to come back into a pathway to once again retap into the source of primordial wisdom that we so badly need right now. Sorry for the long chat there, but it's it's no, a bit of it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, and 
yeah, just sharing the the perspective and the history and how things have unfolded. You mentioned how at times we have one individual uh, taking an action. In this case, you had done a few vision quests and as a young guy, you decided to take some action and that led and contributed to the birth of the environmental movement, the coining of the term environment, and hopefully a lot of awareness and positive impact in protecting the diversity of, of the forests and the ecosystems. And today when we look around, I feel a concern that the actions often emerge from a space of fear and powerlessness or often other shadow elements in response to the climate crisis or a particular cultural crisis or a pandemic instead of coming from that deep space of solitude instead of perhaps coming with a clarity and following that vision sometimes people might feel very powerless in the face of the complexity or they might not realize but they might start formulating an identity as someone who is protesting climate change and that's their identity and they formulate an ego around it perhaps and and so on and often uh, it seems to me that the effectiveness and the, the long-term implications of one's action in a complex ecosystem with highly interconnected webs of influences flowing in both ways require one to be in harmony in one's own internal ecosystem and if one is blocked in various ways from one's own primal energies and shadows one is not seeing reality clearly one is distorting it or one if one is observing reality from the lens of ego one is seeing it from a perspective of what can i take what can i make out of this how can i be the savior of the world by sending people to mars or by saving the environment and that is coming from a very different place than how can i serve nature yeah. right uh, and i feel that i intuit that i have not reached that space in my own cultivation but i intuit that the results of a person cultivating the desire to save the world so they can be the savior and the superhero is very different than someone serving a vision. So with that uh, reflection, I would love to open it up and see if you could comment on the importance of inner work, solitude, shadows, and the ability to hold what is actually happening before jumping out on the first trigger to protest or to break things down? Very good question. Very good. 
symptoms. <clears throat> the, uh, well, hopefully the example I just shared is an example of the power of how deep inner contemplation and spending the time in opening up the inner space and silence and stillness provides a foundation for really listening to the earth, listening to yourself, listening to your own blockages and shadows, listening to your own anger and sadness and grief, listening to the, the entire aspect of outer nature and inner nature, which you need to learn from before you, any actions begin to be taken. Actions ideally come from the pure creativity of a pure connection to both source and to the body of life itself, to this body we call nature Mother Gaia. And in order to arrive there at that state of true authentic connectivity, if you're in a state of deep anger, deep grief, deep sadness, um, deep fear, it's very difficult, if not impossible, for authentic connectivity to occur. You're only really connected to your shadow aspect and your, and your blockage. For the shadow aspect to be transformed into positive, a positive connection, you need to you need to make an authentic connection to the light. When the light, the inner light really begins to shine, the shadows naturally transform into something else, that kind of pure creativity. So much of the work uh, I've been personally involved with for myself is beginning to explore some of these shadow aspects in my own being and then with my students to come up with ways to help them discover their shadow aspects, explore them, I embrace them, honor them, and then through that embrace begin to touch into a level of themselves that allows a very unique and pure creativity to arise. When you start touching into source, because it's absolutely without any particular uh, form content, it's not a particular idea, it's not a particular sense, it's not a particular experience. It's complete, it's vast and primordial, it's without without any particular quality that you can pinpoint. But because it's absolutely pure, formless, both consciousness and awareness, it has the capacity to give birth to virtually any kind of creativity you can possibly conceive of. And when you start touching into that level of your being, and we all have that capacity, although we all have that potential, when you begin to, to dissolve these blockage aspects and truly listen, to the inner true nature aspect. And immense creativity begins to arise. And uh, that in a way is the invitation of these times for all of us. We can touch into that immense true creativity that lies at the heart of ourselves. Then the answers to many of these issues that we're facing today arise authentically from that space. But if you're caught up in anger or fear, for example, or sadness and grief, very difficult because those blockages get in the way of an authentic expression of that true creativity. So the pathway these days is to, at the very start of the warriorship process, begin to address the truth of your inner nature. Where are your blockages? Where are your fears? Where are your anxieties? Where, are your, where is your sadness and grief? Where is your worry? Where is your hastiness? Where is your impatience? and to begin to work with those very dynamically and embrace them fully so that you can begin to 
transform them, transmute them into kind of pure energy, which then allows you to express something that's that's truly healing and a benefit for other your for yourself, for other humans, and for all of life ideally. <clears throat> but it doesn't come from getting caught up and being the savior or anything like that. That's another voice of the ego wanting to be the, the great being. The great, that's useless. So uh, I'll mention one other thing briefly here. I mentioned briefly uh, uh, people like uh, Thoreau. You spent that one year in solitude. You wrote a book called Walden about that journey into solitude. And what happened during that year, an amazing book I recommend it to all of you to read if you haven't had a chance to. It's a true classic. Now, what people often forget is that one of the results of, of, of Thoreau's deep dive into himself and into outer nature was that he, there were some, some social issues that were arising in his time. And from his deep connection to an authentic level of himself, he realized that um, he needed to do something to make a difference in these issues that were arising in those times. And um, so he, he, he did that and he basically came up with an idea of uh, protesting the, the issue that was, I won't go into the details of the issue, but it's, it's, it's clearly stated in this history easy to find. But the point is, he created an idea called civil disobedience. He wrote an essay on this. That essay not only helped with the resolution of that issue, but that idea came from a deep connection to his own true nature and a true authentic response that was appropriate in that time for that situation. That idea then went on and traveled across the ocean to India, who was picked up by a fellow named Gandhi, who took this idea and put it into action in the context of the domination of the English empire, which was really holding India in a tight grip along with South Africa. And Gandhi came up with an amazing application of civil disobedience in a peaceful, nonviolent way that led to finally the the, the entire British Empire changed, shifted, dissolved in its, in its power-hungry context into a much more harmonious relationship through these actions of Satyagraha and civil disobedience and nonviolent peaceful resistance. I should mention, by the way, that uh, Thoreau himself was deeply inspired by many of the philosophical and spiritual concepts of India which traveled over to New England and were an inspiration for spiritual inner cultivation and practice. And Thoreau was part of that tradition along with Emerson. So there was kind of a seed, series of seeds that were planted in the minds of Thoreau and Emerson, which also helped to, to give birth to the, these, this creativity that arose in combination with the solitude, the one year of solitude in, at Walton. Now, this initiative of Gandhi, which had such a powerful effect on the planet, the entire world, amazing. That, that powerful initiative was then picked up by another man whose name was Martin Luther King in the United States. 
Martin Luther King was deeply in, involved in trying to achieve social transformation, much along the lines of what we're dealing with in North America today with, with some of the police violence and brutality that is, is kind of horrendous in the States right now. So Martin Luther King took the experience that Gandhi had of civil disobedience, saw that it was very effective, especially if it was applied with full nonviolent application and an open loving heart and then from a inner capacity to really listen and, and remain in, in coherence with the underlying <coughs> authentic truth of what needed to be expressed, <coughs> but in a way that was not gonna create anger, fear and reactivity <coughs> in the broader culture. It would minimize that it would lead to an, uh, a possibility for the culture to really listen because of the nonviolence and because actually in at the heart of the nonviolence movement is the belief that you love and respect and honor your enemy, your opponent. Now you achieve that love and respect and honoring by deep, going deep into the inner silence and stillness and space of your own being, where you discover that you're completely connected to all life and all beings, including these individuals that you call your opponent. So at that level, you're deeply connected. When you realize that, you have to love your opponent as part of your, part of the bigger family. They may be in a state of, of uh, having a lot of, creating a lot of abuses against your people or your culture or yourself, but there's still that underlying recognition of a deep connectivity that you, that you honor. And because of that, you're respecting your, your opponent, even though you, at the same time you're having to deal with the results of what they're doing and of their behavior. So Martin Luther King was amazing in applying this nonviolent resistance to the, the transformation of the discrimination of, of um, what was going on in, in the 50s and 60s. And he laid the foundation then finally for the Civil Rights Act and many of the the initiatives that Johnson was was able to bring into legislation at the end of his his period, which are still with us today, it didn't cure the entire heal the entire issue of that started with slavery, but it definitely made a huge difference and allowed finally for people like like Obama to be elected, which was unthinkable back in the in the fifties and sixties to have a black president. So. I'm mentioning some of these things because this power of, of um, this power of solitude, and this and the power of bringing spiritual integrity into the process of accomplishing a cultural transformation is the key. Those are the key elements of what allowed many of our major transformations of our time to occur, and I would submit that the same is true for effective application of environmental transformation is now gonna be necessary to come into balance with the rest of life. We have to stop discriminating against other species, other forms of life as being somehow lesser or inferior or something that is uh, not so important as we are. We have to look at life as a big family. And the only way to do that is to establish authentic connection with the rest of life. And the most direct way to do that is through the power of the quest. When people do a nature quest or a sacred passage or a classical vision quest, 
they come out profoundly connected to the rest of life. From that experience, an entire shift in your behavior can occur because you see life and the rest of life as your family, your authentic family. We all need to go through this now as a culture. And the fact we have an invitation in a way from the pandemic in these times right now, we have some time, we have some space to take that deep dive into a much deeper connection. If we simply receive some of the tools, and we're talking about some of these tools here today and through these Way of Nature podcasts we're doing. So thanks for that question. Yeah, thank you for reflecting that, John. And I think you touched upon very interesting points there. One thing that seems to emerge for me is this idea of the right action emerging naturally from within rather than a preconceived application of ideas from the conceptual mind. So to translate that, just because a book or a teacher has told me that we are all connected, I cannot really just take that as a conceptual truth, go into an interaction where I am interacting with a party, which is, let's take context where they are being abusive or unkind to me. And instead of allowing the, the response of anger and working with that energy and using the force while having the insight of interconnectedness, there is a danger that people might become placid and go on the other side and not be able to work and fight back, right? So I think that again links back with the element of A, are we doing a form of spiritual bypassing by not really facing the emotions or sensations which are too uncomfortable for us, which are part of the shadow. It reminds me of a quote by Gandhi or by someone uh, where the, the quote was essentially around, you cannot really forgive someone unless you feel strong enough inside because there's a very little difference between saying I'm actually being compassionate when actually you're being a coward, right? Uh, And no one can tell from the outside what is actually happening. So there's this element of working with the shadow in that. And then this idea of we cannot shortcut the process. We cannot listen to a podcast or a book and just take that one line and just go out there tomorrow and try to fix the world or fix mm-hmm. all the injustices in the system. This has to come from the inside, the inside that Buddha has written down on a piece of paper. I cannot read it and make it my own. It doesn't work that way. At least that's been my experience thus far. If there's a book which will work that way, please let me know. <laughs> I would love to read it. But no, would love 
for you to reflect back to us a little bit on that, on this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You not bypass everything just by assuming that you have got it by taking a book or a, a word. The, uh, it, in a way, it kind of gets back to what we started our, our sharing today around cultivation. If we have not taken the time to take, let's say, a particular insight that maybe is given to us from an elder or wise man from the past, like a Gandhi <clears throat> or a Martin Luther King, if we do not take the time to explore the truth of that within ourselves and what might stand in the way of it, is this, is this principle or is this concept of action true? Where does it come from? Where does it live in me? Where is it not living in me? What is standing in the way of that truth if it's not alive in me? Uh, how can I deepen my exploration of, of that blockage or that shadow aspect which is preventing me from realizing this truth of, say, a Buddha or a Gandhi? And uh, how do I go about this? And that process, if you're then given good gardening tools and a good soil, you've got the good soil in yourself. But if you get given good gardening tools and proper water and uh, quality of the soil is good, has good fertilization qualities, um, then the journey to garden the inner garden is one of making sure that the those things that stand in the way of the, the beauty of the of the natural expression of your creativity, which is the, the beautiful flowers, the beautiful fruits, the beautiful vegetables that emerge from the garden. In order to have that happen, there has to be a little bit of weeding of those plants that might be sucking the force out of those of the other <clears throat> the other um, garden other plants that are, are producing the, the food for you. By the way, when I was taught gardening by my grandparents, I was taught you never pull the other plant out by the roots. What you do is you prune back the other plants so that they begin to honor the soil structure. In a sense, nothing is looked on as a weed. It's just, it's, it's another living species. It's another plant that contributes to the health and the vibrancy of the overall soil. But you do give an advantage to those plants that are providing you with food. So you trim back and roost down to the ground level of the, those plants that are not part of the the food production part of your, your garden, and you give a little extra boost to those that are. But you just don't go right in and poison or kill or, or pull out or, or weed directly, according to the old traditional concept, because your real interest is in maintaining what really allows the garden to be vibrant, and that's the health of the soil. So your major concern is with the whole system. The health of the soil is the foundation of the whole system along with the climate. So you, your primary concern is living in balance with that whole system. Now, when you do that with your own inner garden, it's the same. You don't try to get rid of or quickly remove or deny the blockages that are within yourself. Whatever blockages exist within yourself are true blockages. They must be embraced and honored before anything else can be done. If you embrace a particular kind of an issue, let's say anger or fear, which are two of the most common ones, these days hastiness to get back to life is normal, it's another one. Um, if you 
move too hastily into the uh, what you want to do without really doing that inner cultivation, then the blockage actually can be magnified and the imbalance of the inner garden can become more extreme. And that doesn't really serve the long-term health of anything. What does serve the, serve the long-term health is going into the inner garden, really embracing that blockage aspect, <clears throat> may be it the fear, the anger, the hastiness, for example. And then through the embrace and the loving recognition of that block, the, the block energy of that shadow aspect begins to slowly transform itself. It's self-transformed into free energy and free awareness, free being. And actually the energy of the block is when it, once it begins to transmute and transforms, that becomes free energy that's available for doing some great things. Once the true nature has begun to be touched into and the real insight begins to rise to the surface, then it's given the energy of that transmuted blockage, which before was bound energy, now it's free to express creatively. That's how you cultivate the inner garden and there are a variety of ways of doing this. Here in the way of nature, we're doing a three-year training right now, for example, where we look at the level of, level of these different kinds of blockages and then we learn how to work with them at seven, seven different levels of transformation. <clears throat> and then we apply it <coughs> to the level of the physical body, to the level of the, <clears throat> the energy body, to the level of the, <clears throat> of the, uh, <clears throat> the mental body, to the level of the ancestral and family patterns that you may be dealing with, and ultimately at the level of even the karmic traces you put into this hybrid. So we're giving a huge emphasis to this shadow work before we begin the next job, which is to touch into the true nature aspect of ourselves. That comes afterwards. But first the homework, first the true cultivation of the inner garden. And I'd say for these times, that, that's number one, it's the invitation on the table. And we have the opportunity during this time of, of sequestration to do that inner, internal cultivation if we so desire, if we so make that choice. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, John. And I had always had an issue with people taking weeds out of the garden. <laughs> just <laughs> viscerally, I just felt like, well, this is just one of the plants and it's, it's green as well and it looks pretty to me. Uh, yeah. Maybe you can just let it be. Uh, that's interesting. So, you know, that's a really good point. The, 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 um, one of my teachers was a guy named Marston Bates a wonderful early biologist, ecologist. And he was a, he used to study mosquitoes in, in Columbia. They heard of a yellow fever. Study. And uh, students in the class attended with him back at the university. One time asked him in the middle of the class, uh, Professor Bates, I'm curious. From your experience, you've got extensive years of experience with the mosquitoes. What good is a mosquito? And Professor Bates didn't even hesitate. He turned to that guy and said, what good are you? <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> uh, yeah. What? And the other, other interesting thing that came to me was how close the word soil 
and soul are yeah. and how we can often reflect on cultivating the soil of the outer garden in a yeah. way as cultivating the soul the inner garden nice point and of course along with that goes things like i mean we think of the soil as dirty or the dirt is bad and yet we forget the fact that the garden the beautiful flowers the lotus grows out of the mud the beautiful flowers grow out of this thick black muck which is um this this, this dirty mucky uh humus that is a result of the the of our crap and and our bodies going through the process of decay and then all these elements return to the soil and are brought back and they grow back up in the form of beautiful fruits beautiful flowers beautiful vegetables beautiful trees beautiful nature yeah and this principle of no waste which is present in the ecosystem in a way can be directly yeah. translated into the spiritual work as well whatever situation is coming to you don't let yeah. it go away just just transform it uh, yeah. that's beautiful yeah yeah thank you for sharing that john i i think i think that is a lot of interesting ideas for people to reflect on and to think about and perhaps even begin uh, in their own cultivation process and yeah. to not rush with it perhaps right because uh, as one of one one famous investor i follow he says you cannot create a baby by having nine women and one month it takes nine months to create a baby. In the same way, I feel uh, you cannot really accelerate this process. It, it takes its own time. Uh, so perhaps going deeper, and which is which is something which I think is very interesting because this is in our shortcut culture and way of nature. You're really doing something that is becoming rarer and rarer which is like authentic quality and depth in the teachings where you actually have a process that is a three-year process or a vision quest which is a 12-day process or sometimes people come for longer solos it's not you can come and do this half an hour meditation and everything will be resolved right uh, which i feel is the the which is the mcdonald's of spirituality essentially what it happened <laughs> we've just taken spirituality manufactured it into these small palatable products and mass mass produced it um uh, so it's, it's really lovely to see the work that you've been doing and all the lives that you have touched uh, in this manner and I, I think building on what you're sharing there, uh, we do have some really good materials that have been developed, like the new book of leaves, which are designed to provide <clears throat> points of inspiration and practice and cultivation in nature. And uh, they literally designed to be, give you a kind of a toolkit to get started with these things. And the earlier book that we did on Skybiber Pula was an introductory manual to 
how to engage the process in the very, very beginning. The second book is more a series of uh, inspirations uh, and uh, kind of uh, linkages to visuals that are inspiring that help you take that journey deeper and deeper and deeper our companions along the path of the cultivation process. But um, <clears throat> these kinds of very simple tools, I think, are, can be helpful for people who are just starting out. <clears throat> and then later on, you can engage in the more deeply in the various processes that we recommend there. Uh, on your own or in a small community or if you are able to do it in the context of one of our way of nature programs of course to be highly recommend that otherwise I wouldn't be sitting here talking about this today but um, <clears throat> but the overall thing is a process and you can engage in whatever you'd like to and remain either fully uh, independent and just kind of Take your time with your own pace in your own way and do it. Or you take a deeper dive. But as you were saying, its own uh, time frame of maturation. Things can't be speeded up. As you say, you can't garden with a beautiful flower budding out. If you try to pull that flower with its bud so you can experience it more quickly, of course, you kill the flower. And uh, so it has to be patience and uh, uh, listening to the natural growth rate of the flower. It'll express itself when everything comes together exactly the right way at the right time. And we're no different. Absolutely. And uh, if you're listening to this and you're curious, maybe that's the calling from your inner stillness. You can find out more about John's work at uh, wayofnature.com and uh, you can look up his books he has two books both are really beautiful one is called sky above earth below which will give you a sense of the practices and principles you can also find the principles on the website uh, it's available for free there you can have a look through at what the principles look like and if they resonate with you and uh, if you are interested in a deeper dive, you can decide to book one of these vision quests in these beautiful spaces in nature, sometimes in forests, sometimes in Mexico, sometimes in Patagonia, all these lovely destinations where you can spend some time uh, going deeper. Hopefully, uh, in time, we will be out of the, the COVID pandemic and and everyone will be able to travel again but in the meanwhile uh, we also have a lot of in-depth teachings which we have shared in the series of podcasts from the starting principles and the context and john has been very very generous in sharing some practices which are often highly secretive and uh, not really shared very widely, especially practices from the Taoist traditions and some of the more esoteric traditions where things are not easily available. Um, so yeah, we, we encourage you to have a look at that as well. And uh, wherever you are listening to this, we wish you 
a lot of silence, stillness, and spaciousness. Any final words for the listeners, John? Oh, I should mention that this one is also available. It's called Cultivating Natural Liberation, Teachings on Reconnecting with the Three Natures. That means outer, inner, and true. And this is available, we published it in Austria, Germany. So if you go to the Way of Nature uh, website, there's a direct link to the Way of Nature or, or to the Amazon Germany um, site that makes these available. We don't have them available yet in the US or in Europe, elsewhere, or in Latin America, or Asia. But the simple way is just to go to the website and then you can, you can order the book directly through Amazon Germany. And this, it, this takes uh, the Skype of Earth Below book work and takes it to a, a very practical level of how you can begin to practice with the contents of this book in nature, in your own neighborhood. It's very, very practical and it's meant to be a field book for you to take out and work with individually. You don't have to necessarily have a teacher present to help you. The book is designed to provide that. So I did want to mention that too. Yeah. And, and just to add on that, I think it's a very unique book. Uh, it's essentially a collection of cards and I've read them many, many times and I'm surprised at how carefully each and every word has been chosen in terms of the sequencing and in terms of the, the interpretation. And it's pure, pure essence of, of process it has no word that doesn't need to be there it's very distilled so if you are someone who really likes to get to the crux of things especially with inner work and so many traditions there can be so much complexity you can just play with that that's true well great to spend time with you today Pradeep uh, maybe we Thanks. could finish with a, a one minute uh, silent uh, space before we close. What do you think? Sounds perfect, John. Thank you. And gong us in and gong us out. <laughs> the time today. That's how we roll with the gong. <laughs> Ready? And when you're, if you're, for those of you uh, at home, uh, if you're driving a car, it's probably better to pull over to do this. But if you're in a regular space, if you can just take a little moment to sit quietly and uh, ideally with your back fairly upright and not leaning against a chair or anything like that, but independent of the back of the chair. And just feeling the back upright and, and uh, in a very centered, naturally balanced space where you're not falling forward and you're not falling backwards, you're not leaning to one side, and you're not looking to the other side, and you're lifting from the crown of the head into the sky and root it down into the earth through the soles of the feet. Even if you're in a building, you can visualize your, your feet going all the way down through the building into the earth itself and connecting lovingly with Mother Earth as you do this very short meditation. Just do this for one minute and breathe deeply to breathe naturally from the lower belly and relax.